Welcome to Cerebronas. Bronas. I'm Yvette, and normally we're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and legal practice and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this episode, I'll be chatting with my cousin Stephanie about intergenerational trauma, the anxiety we've experienced, and how we cope with it. Unfortunately, Cynthia can't join us for this episode because she's still on her much-deserved vacation in Peru, but she will be back for the next episode. So, Steph, do you want to introduce yourself now to the listeners? Okay, I'm Stephanie. Great. That's a very lengthy introduction. Um, (laughs) So... I wanted to have a quick check-in before we kind of started diving into the intergenerational trauma stuff, catch up on my move to Tucson and the start of the new school year for you. Wait, I'm not in school. Oh, I didn't know that. I wasn't sure. Okay, well, how are things, how are things generally? Um, they've been pretty good. I've just been staying on my grind, focusing on myself. That's good. You like your job? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's gone better. I just got a raise. Ooh, that's good. Money moves. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I've been adjusting to Tucson. It's really different than the Bay Area. I think the Bay Area is such a special, special place, and I always realize that when I move away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, but my kitten Mocha has been really helping me adjust. And on Friday, I hung out with one of my coworkers, Michael, who I really love, and we had such a good time. And it was like, it gave me hope that Tucson can be fun. Yeah. So that's have you good. have you been to any of the cool spots to eat out there? Yeah, I went to this place called El Guero Canelo, which is supposed to be like one of the best places to get Mexican food here. And I had a Sonoran hot dog, which is like kind of like. Oh. Yeah, which is kind of like the bacon wrapped hot dogs that they sell in the Mission, but like on 10, because it's bacon wrapped hot dogs with chili beans, um, crema, like peppers, onions. Ooh, that sounds hella bomb. Yeah, it was really good. I went there with my mom and she really liked it. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other, but actually I've been cooking a lot for myself because I'm trying to save money. Yeah. Yeah. But I think actually, like, I kind of was worried about there not being good food places, but I've been pleasantly surprised. I think that there are good places to eat. It's just kind of different than the Bay Area. Like, I feel like, yeah. especially the places I would go in the Bay Area, they were just, like, so bougie. <laughs> and, like, the places here are more cute. Yeah. intergenerational trauma. So this is a concept that explains how 
collective or individual traumas passed down to future generations. So an example of a collective trauma would be like a civil war, which applies to me and Steph because both of our parents fled the Salvadorian civil war in the 80s. And then a type of individual trauma that can be passed down to future generations would be like child abuse. So this is something we see where child abuse happens across generations. People who are abused as children then uh, abuse the children of their own if they're not able to break out of the trauma that they experienced as children. And what's crazy about the effects of intergenerational trauma is that even if the individual of the subsequent generation is in a totally different environment, they still feel the effects of the trauma from the generation before them. So that's how, like, for example, Steph and I have both experienced anxiety, even though we grew up in the Bay Area of California and led like relatively comfortable lives compared to what our parents went through. Other examples of intergenerational trauma are Holocaust survivors, black folks living through all of the experiences in, within the U.S. of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, the current prison industrial complex, and then also native folks um, having their land taken away, being pushed off of their land, being executed, dying of disease, the native boarding schools, just to name a few things that have led to intergenerational trauma. And like I said, the environment, the sorry, the example that it applies to Steph and I would be Salvadorians who experienced the Civil War. Yeah. So, like, their traumas aren't fully resolved, and it's not like they had healthy ways of coping with it, but it just keeps on passing down through generations and generations until, like, even though we didn't even ever experience the Civil War, like, we're kind of, like, feeling, like, some of the effects of, like, what it's like to, like, not have had that result, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally. Yeah, and it can transmit in your genes and make you more predisposed to certain types of mental illness. But then also, like Steph was saying, it can be that you never gained healthy coping skills, and so, like, the way that you parent is influenced by that. If you haven't gotten yeah. over your own traumas, you can't effectively teach your child healthy coping mechanisms because you don't have them yourself. So there's, yeah, so there's different ways that the trauma manifests itself, and it manifests itself for different reasons. And something that's really important about this is that treating this type of trauma requires treatment to be culturally specific, which makes sense, right? There's like yeah. the, the trauma comes from a specific source, right? Like my mom has told me stories about riding the bus to work and the bus being stopped and by guerrilla forces and being forced off the bus so that they could blow up the bus in front of her, you know, in front of passengers on the bus. Yeah. So for, you know, because of things like that, I think my mom experiences a lot of anxiety because she grew up in an environment where in order to be safe and stay alive, she had to be alert all the time. And unfortunately, when you develop coping mechanisms like that, they stay preserved in your body's memory, even if you don't, even if you live in a different environment now. So like now our family lives in the suburbs of the Bay Area, like very calm place, place where you don't need to be on alert all the same time at the all the time in the same way that they needed to be. But unfortunately, that default 
mindset that my mom has has stayed present with her. Something that I thought was interesting that I felt like was important to note was that adolescents with substance abuse issues should always be screened for intergenerational trauma. Um, and I think this is like really important because it kind of helps explain certain things like the native community has really, really high rates of alcoholism. And this is because of intergenerational trauma. When you have experienced horrific levels of trauma and violence, and then on top of that, didn't have access to therapy, to meds, to healthy coping mechanisms, then you adopt the only coping mechanisms that you have at your disposal, which in this case is alcohol. Um, and I think that that's just really important to note for young, for young folks who are maybe struggling with substance abuse issues or struggling with doing drugs and drinking in ways that are unhealthy, because you should kind of think about whether or not any of the any of these things apply to you. I'm not like demonizing doing drugs or drinking, but I think if you use it as a way to feel better, then it's definitely that's a red flag that should be going off for you and you should be thinking about you know why it is that you feel drawn towards those behaviors. What I wanted to get into next was the four means of transmissions of trauma, kind of talking about earlier. So one way is the vicarious identification of children with their parents suffering. So what that means is that even though you didn't experience the trauma that your parents did, you come to identify with it vicariously through their stories and through the way that you see them suffer. And I think that that's something that definitely kind of affected me early on in life. You know, I think I... After researching intergenerational trauma, a lot of the attitudes that my mom has made a lot more sense. Like, she always told me growing up that you couldn't trust anybody and that you couldn't trust any of your friends. And that at the end of the day, your friends had really bad intentions for you and that you shouldn't ever trust them. The only people that you can trust are your nuclear family. And I think that that was like an attitude that she developed as a result of the really violent environment in which she grew up and I think that she was trying to pass that down to me and telling me things like that and it took a lot of like it just took me rejecting that mindset to not ultimately take that on myself but I definitely understood how that could very easily happen to folks yeah like they really emphasize like family and stuff like you could only trust your family or whatever blah blah but they weren't like really giving us much to trust you know exactly exactly and I think you know when you live in a really high poverty area when you live in a high crime area when you're literally living during a war you might develop that kind of survival mechanism of like I can't trust anybody especially because the government was constantly surveilling people's political activity and if somebody snitched on you that could be the cause of your death and so it makes sense that like she would develop that attitude but again these these survival mechanisms stay with you even when you've left the, that environment. And so unfortunately, she was never really able to get past that way of thinking. Yeah. Another means of transmission of trauma is the intuitive responsibility assumed by children to compensate in various ways for their parents' suffering. I think this makes sense. I think this is also kind of, I think this is something that exists for kids of immigrants in general. I think maybe might be on a bigger scale when you're talking about trauma affected folks but you know I think this is like the responsibility the burden that we feel in order to make our parents journey worth it right like 
Yeah. My mom crossed three borders so that literally so that I could have better educational opportunities. And I think that that's what drove so much of my desire to succeed in school because, you know, my work needed to be worth it. It needed to be worth that harrowing journey and a whole lifetime of adjusting to a country that is really in many ways anti-immigrant and xenophobic. And then this one I thought was really important. Another way that trauma is transmitted is the particular patterns of parenting demonstrated by survivors toward their offspring. So for example, someone may have learned to cope by cutting off their emotions, which then makes them unable to communicate in a healthy way emotionally with their children. Uh, I thought this was really, really important because honestly, I see this a lot of times with clients that I see where though because they've, they experience, they have experienced so much horribleness that the way that they cope is just by disassociating and detaching themselves from reality so that they don't really have to feel all the feelings that they have uh, about their trauma and so if you feel like this might be you if this might be one of the ways that you cope important questions to ask yourself are do you hide your emotions and act as if nothing is happening Do you internalize your emotions until something triggers them to come spilling out? Or does your family drink or use drugs to cope with the pain? This is something we were talking about earlier. Whatever the way the trauma is dealt with, older generations within a family set the stage for how traumatic events should be and often are coped with, which makes sense. Your parents are models for how to live your life as an adult, right? So if you saw your parent drinking or if you saw your parent doing drugs as a way to feel better, that's kind of naturally going to seem like a way, like a good way for you to cope with your own issues later on. And so this is kind of devastating because this is why the trauma continues throughout generations because those who needed help never received it. And then they raised children not knowing how to instill healthy coping mechanisms within their child's lives. I also thought this was really interesting stuff. So Uh, I guess this is an idea for what can spark bipolar disorder, which is living in an invalidating environment, which is where environments where emotions are minimized or ignored. And these are often present in families of intergenerational trauma. Like I said, because oftentimes the way that people cope is by just shutting off their emotions. And so oftentimes then this creates this idea that emotions are minimal or that it's okay to ignore emotions and feelings. And that this invalidation can lead to the developing symptoms of bipolar disorder and ultimately failed familial and social relationships. Because of the trauma of an older relative, the younger generation may experience emotional and psychological abuse, which can result in feeling invalidated. These repeated feelings can then lead to switchable emotions, which leads to bipolar-like symptoms. Obviously, there's genetics and upbringing, and then there's other risk and protective factors that also play a role. But this, but science, or sorry, but research shows that um, that invalidating environments can be a huge trigger for bipolar disorder. Yeah, like I just think it's like we don't really realize like how much we're actually processing when it's actually happening, like. You have, like, a little moment, like, you're just chilling at home, and, like, then your mom says the thing that's, like, super out of line, like, you get a little bit triggered, then you're just like, okay, I kind of have to go about my day, but then, like, you add a bunch of moments like that up, and it's just, like, your brain, it can't, like, process it, you know? Hella things just end up getting ignored, and then, like, it comes up as a bigger problem later, like, you know, like, an actual mental health issue, like, bipolar disorder thing. Yeah, and you say little things, but I think the point of this is that, like, 
It's not really little when someone invalidates your feelings or invalidates your reality. You know, we've talked about gaslighting yeah, before on this podcast. Like, you know, the way that we're, I'm even supposed to feel like I can I can express talking about it is just like, I'm, I'm supposed to make it seem like it's little because I have to deal with it every day, but there's like so much to unpack and actually think about. It's like, what, like critically, like actually, like what's going on? <laughs> And, like, we just have to act like it's just, like, yeah, this is just normal, like, but there's a lot that's really going on that we have to kind of dismiss. Or I felt like maybe one of the ways, the ways that I cope with it is just by being dismissive because I'm just, like, this kind of is a lot to think about right now. Yeah, I mean... And that might have been how you were taught to cope with your feelings, that you just needed to pretend like they weren't that big of a deal. Yeah, exactly, because then, you know, they come at you like, oh, well, like, we went through this or whatever, and we were fine, and it makes it feel like, just like this whole, like, you know, culture of invalidation, basically, that's going on. Yeah, I mean, what's messed up about that idea is like, well, actually, I am going through it, too, because of what you went through, like... Yeah, exactly. You know, because you passed your genes down to me, actually, like, a lot of the things that you experienced are embedded in my hippocampus. <laughs> That's why it's really, it's really hard to navigate how our family deals with um, mental health issues because they don't put enough emphasis on it, and they kind of, like, don't really, honestly, don't even really think that it's, like, a real thing. They're just like, oh, you know, because they didn't, they didn't have the same coping skills that we do. That they don't place the same emphasis on their mental health as we do. For for whatever reason, it wasn't something that was like an option for them. Yeah, I mean, it's not for whatever reason. It's because of colonialism and specifically, you know, Spain and the U.S. extracting raw resources from El Salvador and leaving the economy in shambles. So that there, there is no kind of healthcare infrastructure that would allow for healthy mental health resources, at least not in the way that we have access to them. And, and our then also just like yeah, like socially and culturally, like the machismo and stuff, like does it make it does it make people feel like they're open with even sharing their feelings? No, that's very real. There are there are cultural components of it too. I think that come from that are related to Catholicism. Yeah. These ideas of machismo and you know which leads to dealing with emotions through violence. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah, and so what we've been kind of touching on is that the styles of communication between parents and their children concerning their parents' traumatic experiences are another way in which trauma is transmitted. Which, you know, which just makes sense. It's, it's what we've been talking about so far. Yeah. So another way that this affects how parents raise their children is what attachment style parents provide to their child. So this is something I'm not sure if people are familiar with, but an attachment style is the, is the way that you approach romantic relationships. Uh, and so there's different kinds. There's anxious, anxious avoidant, avoidant, and secure. Someone who has an anxious attachment style, the example that they give is this was a, an experiment done with monkeys. And so there was like a monkey who was like playing with their mother and then they were separated from the mother. And then when the, when the mother came back, they would just cry and cry and cry and cry. And they, wouldn't, they were just 
basically always anxious about the possibility of their mother leaving again. And so if you have an anxious attachment style, that basically means that you're like overly worried about whether or not your partner likes you. You're kind of like in this constant spot space of insecurity and so it can lead you to kind of smother people or get really clingy or possessive and then there's anxious avoidant which is I guess it might help to explain avoidant first so if you're avoidant this example is like when it's like a monkey who separated from his mother and then when the mother comes back the monkey like act like ignores the mom and like plays on its own in the corner and acts like it's okay but actually internally it experiences all of the emotions that the anxious monkey did but it just doesn't show it So an avoidant person is somebody who, like, it, you know, as you might think, just avoids intimacy at all costs. Like, anytime they feel themselves getting too close to somebody, they figure out a way out. Anxious avoidant is, like, a weird mix of both. It's kind of like you're anxious sometimes and then you're avoidant sometimes, and it's really hard to predict what mood you're going to be in. And then secure is, like, the best and what we should all try and be, which is, like, you trust that your partner loves you and you trust them enough to let them go and do their own thing and you're not worried about whether or not they're going to come back you know that they're going to come back (laughs) i just find it funny because like that's like healthy like everyone should think like that but i just find it funny because i don't know (laughs) it's hard to be like yeah like i for sure deserve like all this yeah i think I identify as having an anxious attachment style. Although, just yeah, me too. Yeah. That's why I laugh that people are actually secure because like I can't picture that. I know. Joseph thinks he's anxious too, but I honestly think he has a secure attachment style. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I learned from him. I I learned the way that he models his love. Yeah. Um. So another way that you know parenting from a a person who's experienced trauma can affect their child is the activities that the parent chooses to engage in with the child which I was kind of interesting to me because growing up like my dad was never emotionally invested at all I really like honestly my memories of him as a parent are him just like sitting in front of the tv like that's it he was he wasn't (laughs) he wasn't engaged at all and, and it just made me realize like at least part of that must be an effective trauma of like yeah you know of not knowing how to really engage with your child yeah another way that parent that parenting from a traumatized person can affect your child is the stories that a parent tells a child so transmitting anxiety through yeah transmitting anxiety through stories and this was something that I really resonated with because Growing up, my mom only focused on traumatic stories of kidnaps, rapes. Oh my gosh, it was always so dramatic and traumatic, both of them. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just like, it was always like 10 times, amplified 10 times more than the story actually was. Like, the real story is like, oh yeah, like I had a neighbor that smoked (laughs) weed. And then like they would tell us like, yeah, like one time we had a neighbor and like she was like, I don't know, like we were just like, yeah and like i remember she would watch caso cerrado a lot which is like yeah oh my gosh i I didn't like watching that show (laughs) like it's like they're i can't tell if they're like trying to be funny no there's like some real stuff going on yeah (laughs) 
No. Yeah, I mean, it, I can see why you'd say, like, they were trying to be funny because the stories would be, like, so absurd. Like, it would be, like, yeah. the very <laughs> worst thing that could ever happen to a human in the world. Yeah, and it was, like, especially difficult to comprehend because, like, that would be on in the background when I was, like, 10. You know, just, like, completely yeah. inappropriate to be watching in front of a 10-year-old. Oh, my gosh. I, you know what else I watch? Dos de Corazones. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, but that's a really different show. That's, like, a dating show. I know, but I just feel like that's just, like, I don't know, part of, like, the culture that they, like, expect us to, like accept and like pass down and stuff which i also thought was traumatic those the is why wait why was it traumatic isn't it just like the bachelor and the bachelorette it's like yeah it's like there's like 12 women 12 men and they're like all trying to find like a Like, 
you have to try and like calm yourself down but then you're just like okay so I focus on my mind or my body find a good combination that works for you to be able to like tackle the physical symptoms because it's really hard to like get wrapped up in the physical symptoms and then not like know what to do I because I've taken um medication for anxiety too so that has helped me because they're like you know I need to take my anxiety meds to help me with the physical system so I can just focus on like the mental part of it it really helps yeah and I think that this proves how weird it is that we talk about mental health as different than physical health and that insurance exactly. covers both differently because they are super intertwined exactly so you've shared a little bit about your experiences with anxiety and you share that you are on medication i'm on medication too for anxiety but otherwise how do you overcome i really like my one of my therapists um like a happy box and it's kind of this little thing I turn to that has all this stuff that'll ground. I have one thing for each of the five senses in the box and it's you know something that like I can look at it's like visually pleasing to me something I can smell something I can touch you know like a you know what like a, a stress ball like honestly those things really work because mm. it's like if you're just trying to like you know play with something in your hands have something like touch something and then you know just like also just like have like my favorite song or like a couple trends like write down like something it's just like anything to get like to get in in touch with what the situation is right now with my reality right now like where am I right now like I'm having anxiety about something but I'm, I can still remind myself that I am where, where I'm at right now and I have like things that'll make me happy to bring me back to a place where I feel safe again and come. yeah so what's tough is sure right now are grounding techniques and these are exercises that bring you into the present moment. And they can be short things like deep breaths or longer like meditation. It, uh, like just basically what, what Steph was saying, things from the five senses that help you stay in the present moment. Because your anxiety ha- has you trapped in the past or like anxious about the future. You're just not in the present moment. And so these grounding techniques help you come back into the present moment and just be still. Yeah. Um, and so how, how would you say... Your essential oil. I love those every time. Oh, yeah. So, should we just get into the concrete tips for people? Yeah. Okay, so the things that I wrote down are yeah, so like essential oils, but specifically, I really like lavender. And um, like sometimes, there's been times where I felt really anxious, or like Joseph has felt really anxious, and I've just like um, dropped essential oils into my palms and then smelled it. And it sounds weird, but, like, lavender really is really relaxing, and, like, smelling it does relax yeah. you. Like, taking deep breath, like, taking three deep breaths and, like, smelling it really, really helps. And then also, I've started a meditation practice. I meditate, I try and meditate every morning for 20 minutes. And it's a small thing, but it honestly helps me so much. It helps me focus throughout the day, and it helps me stay present. Basically, it's, it's the same idea of a grounding exercise. It's focusing your attention fully on each breath, on the way in and the way out. And it just like helps you kind of be more aware of your present moment, which also helps you be happier, honestly, because oftentimes we're trapped thinking about the future or the past and we're not enjoying what we're currently experiencing. And the only way to experience happiness is by being present and being able to appreciate what's occurring to you at that moment. Yeah. 
Um, and so Sh- Steph and I share that we're both on medication. I'm on medication for depression and anxiety. And I wanted to share uh, something that I utilized recently because I just changed jobs and just switched health insurance. And I've been trying to find a new psychiatrist. Um, and obviously, it's just like healthcare all over this country. It's so shitty. But like, I kind of feel like Arizona is like especially shitty. Like I definitely had better experiences in California. But while I get a psychiatrist to refill my prescription, I got a bridge prescription. And so that's kind of like when you're in between health insurance policies, when you're in between prescriptions, you can go to places that will give you an emergency bridge prescription so you don't have to go out without your meds. So there's a crisis response center in Tucson that does this very thing, and it's open 24-7. So it's a really amazing resource. I didn't know that that was even a thing. That's awesome. Yeah, Joseph told me about it. It's super useful and super important. And then also therapy. Uh, for the past like, two years, I went to therapy every week. And therapy is really good because, it, like for me, it's just an hour every week where I set aside time to reflect and to think about why I reacted a certain way to a certain thing. And it really helps you process your emotions and grow. Yeah, I think, like, for me, therapy has been hella good, too. Like, I don't know, because it's weird because I always get anxiety before I go. But then once I get in there and actually talk about things, I'm just like, yeah that's very relatable there's been so many times where I've just been like oh I would really just rather not go to therapy I really want to cancel I really want to skip like I'd rather just watch tv because it's hard you know it's hard work like well yeah because you it's also just like you you, you're putting in your own effort and like yeah you know you get out of it like what you put into it and stuff exactly like I'm going to therapy but you know you're not actually like opening up about what you want to talk about or actually addressing like what's on your mind exactly so if you're doing it well like likely your therapy session is going to be hard because you're going to talk about the uncomfortable things that you'd rather just not think about that you'd rather suppress so I often feel that way too but I always I like almost always force myself to go because I feel the feeling that you feel after that you just talked about stuff of feeling relieved and feeling like okay that was good I'm glad I talked about that yeah cool So I also really quickly wanted to share a resource that I came across recently because of the work that I'm doing. And this is good for lawyers. There are certain things that you can do to avoid re-traumatizing your client. And this is very critical for people who are working with people who are detained or folks who are incarcerated, people who are experiencing serious trauma. You know, obviously as as lawyers, as service providers, we don't want to re-traumatize our clients. And so these are things that you can do to avoid you should this a lot of these things seem obvious but honestly they're really not obvious to most lawyers so i'm just going to say them so you have to give the client power to make decisions in the representation obviously like you know there's a give and take in terms of deciding what what legal strategy you want to take but like you ultimately have to realize that you are working for your client and every decision is your client's decision and so you, you need to do this in order to empower them to not make them feel powerless which is what trauma makes us feel if you are if you are going to ask your client to tell their story to tell their story of their trauma ask them when they want to talk about it let them decide how and when they're going to tell you I know this is difficult for folks working with people who are detained because oftentimes all you have is those 10 minutes that the guard is going to let you have as much as you can empower them to decide when they're going to tell you their story and then also, like, when they are ready to talk about the, about their trauma, offer breaks to give them the opportunity to decide how they're going to tell you the story. Also, be consistent. And so, like, 
what this means is like if you tell your client that you're going to show up on Thursday at 1 p.m., you better be there on Thursday at 1 p.m. And if there's any reason why you can't be there, then let them know. Don't make promises that you can't keep because doing so will re-traumatize your client. So be consistent, be empowering, and then also like read up on, on these grounding techniques that we were sharing earlier because they can, they can help your client if they're having a dif- difficulty telling their story. I was reading about how to figure out how intergenerational trauma might be affecting you. And a good place to start is by asking yourself good questions like, what ideas of the world do I have that I learned from my parents? Are these actually true? Who am I as an individual separate from my family? Last thing I wanted to note is that transgenerational trauma is effectively a form of PTSD. So if you are going to find a therapist to try and work through these issues, it's a good idea to find a therapist who specializes and is experienced in treating PTSD. Trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy is often recommended if you feel like you're struggling with these things. Steph, is there anything you wanted to add? Well, I wanted to do a little recommendation. I wanted to recommend Feeling Good, (laughs) that book. Do you remember that part where it talks about the different... One of the things I remember is like all or nothing thinking. It just breaks down all the ways that um, there's like train of thoughts that we have that like we don't even really realize that we're doing and the way that we frame our thoughts and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say I recommend people read the whole book. That was the, that was the book, first book that I read that really helped me understand depression. It's called feeling. Yeah. It's called feeling good by David Burns, and it's amazing. Like I, when I first started reading it, I literally just burst out crying because I realized how hard I had been being on myself for so many years. Yeah. Cool. So the recommendation that I wanted to give is the book "Our Prisons Obsolete" by Angela Davis. I made a post about this on Instagram, but just wanted to reiterate this here. It's an amazing book for anyone that's thinking about prison abolition and wanted and wants to kind of get a first start at thinking about it. It's a really good and quick read, really accessible and really poignant. And then for kind of a more fun recommendation, I wanted to recommend the TV show The Americans. It's on Amazon and it follows the story of Russian spies, Russian KGB agents undercover in America. It's like, it's a super great drama and it's super riveting. So for our sign off, I before I wanted to, fall, before we end the episode, I wanted to recommend and I'll ask you all to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cerebrona. Donate to our Patreon. The link is on our website. Or you can just Venmo us at Cerebronas. Also, please leave us an iTunes review. We love it. You make our day when you leave us an iTunes review, and it helps us gain popularity and visibility. Also, you can still buy our stickers and bookmarks. If you're interested, please DM us. Or you can just... Uh, Venmo $5 to Cerebronas and put your address in the comment line and then I'll, I'll mail that to you all. So thanks for tuning in and thanks Steph for participating in this episode.
Welcome to Cere Bronas. I'm Yvette, and normally we're two Latinas from working class immigrant families.